Hello to everybody who's at home. Um, we are excited to just be here together and to just worship this morning. So before we worship, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we just, we thank you for who you are, God. We thank you that you love us so much, Lord. We thank you that um, we are able to just gather together and worship and to um, just lift you up this morning. <clears throat> we ask that right now um, we would be able to just focus on you, Lord, to set this time aside to make it all about you, Lord. Um, and we just ask that our hearts would be open, Lord, to receive from you anything that you would want to say to us this morning, Lord. And so we just ask that above all, your name would be glorified today. Amen.
Lord, we just thank you for this time that we've had to just set aside and worship you, Lord. We thank you for your love, Lord, in our lives. And we just, we ask that you would just work on our hearts continuously, Lord, every day that we would strive to be more and more like you, Lord, to imitate you, Lord, to live like you, to live like Jesus. We ask that you would just bless the remainder of this service, Lord, and that you would be glorified. Amen. So we're going to take a short break right now so we can reconfigure the stage a little bit, and then we will. Welcome back. Uh, for those watching, thanks for those here that stayed. We appreciate that. It always makes me feel good when people don't leave right after the music. So thank you. Uh, I want to make one quick announcement for uh, everybody listening or here. Uh, we're going to have we're just uh, going to have a special time of prayer tonight from six to seven. It's going to be kind of uh, loose and unstructured in the sense that there will just be uh, slides that will pop up giving giving some ideas of things to pray for or scripture to pray about. And the slide will last like two minutes, and then there'll be another slide. And there's 12 slides total, so that if you come in 24 minutes, you've 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 prayed. You've prayed all the prayers that can be prayed, yeah. Um, in 24 minutes, you've run through the slides. And so you can come in. I mean, if you can only come in and pray for five minutes, that's fine. But from 6 to 7 tonight, we're going to have uh, these slides that, are, that are, are going on. And you just come in, you find a chair, you spend some time in prayer, and then you, you leave when you're ready to leave. If you want to stay the whole hour, that's great too. So we want to remind you of that, the, uh, the prayer time that is tonight. And then... Today we're going to talk about, it's, we're kind of coming right off of what I talked about last week, so that if you weren't here or didn't listen last week, I encourage you to go back and listen, and that all that is, uh, I call it the hymn of incarnation. It is uh, from 6 to 11, this is a hymn that actually was uh, written and sung more than likely right after the time of Christ's death, and then Paul incorporated it into his uh, into his. Uh, is book of Philippians in Philippians chapter 2. All right? So, uh, two verses 5 through and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the And, and, uh, and it's our 39th anniversary, so it's been quite a while together. And so Bev and I uh, did some things yesterday uh, just, just together that we, we both wanted to do. And uh, at one point, we were sitting down, and she said, let's just, let's just talk about our favorite memories from our marriage. What are some of our favorite memories? And oh man, yeah, so that got, yeah, I started going on that one. That was just difficult. And so we talked about things, the highlight, what we looked at, we look back and we think we're just these wonderful times together. Interestingly, none of them involved our kids. So I'm not sure what that means if there's any young couples out there thinking of having kids. <laughs> okay. Um, but, but these fam- favorite memories of, of our life of 39 years together, of highlights and things that we, we look back.
got me into this whole feeling nostalgic because then you start thinking, man, I'm old, man. And then you start looking back and it's just, for somebody like me, it's just downhill from there. But Well, I realize what I need to do then is I need to follow him. I need to follow in his footsteps. And part of that involves seeing how he served and what motivated him to serve and how that worked out in his life and seeing how he caused real change in people's lives. And so last week, this, I mean, this passage is so appropriate for that. And last week, we looked at something. We looked at what God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now, I started thinking about this, and we talked about him last week. What does this mean? He got angry, and he got frustrated, and he loved, and he got surprised. He felt betrayal. He had to learn how to deal with idiots. He had to pray. He had to ask God for things. And at least one of the times he asked God for something, God said no to him. And he said, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And that's what he was all about. That's what this passage is telling us. And so there's a clue here, giving up of his glory. I don't know the total implication of this, but he gave up what was rightfully his for the sake of others. For the sake of you, he did that. And so that's, that's you know, in a sense, what he did, he made himself nothing. We also last week talked about that he humbled himself. That was in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we talked about how that humbling, it came all the way to the worst possible thing in, in, a Jewish, in Jewish eyes, the worst possible thing that it could ever happen to a person is to die on a cross, to die on We need to do it, not be required to do it, but to do it because we love. The father didn't force the son to do this. The son did it on his own, own volition, knowing fully the consequences. And I think about how that can work out in our lives, this idea of humbling ourselves, of making ourselves nothing, of becoming the servant that this is talking about. I love the writings of, of a, a guy named Dallas Willard. And, and I read, a, somebody was sharing a personal story one time about Dallas Willard. He was the, he was the chair of psychology at, at the University of Southern California. And, uh, and just an incredible uh, Christian.
young person stood up right towards the end of the class, and, and he was just saying, Professor, well, I just disagree with what you're saying, and I think da-da-da-da. And, and the tone and the things that this student said were almost demeaning and, and really pushing the line of, of, of being just totally out of bounds. And the student said his piece, and then Dallas Willard said, well, on that note, I think this is a good time to end our class. Remember, such and such is due next week, and you guys are all dismissed. And this professor who was watching came over to him, and he was astounded. He says, I don't understand what you're doing here. That young man insulted you. That young man pushed the boundaries of what is proper in a classroom in addressing a professor. And not only that, but that young man was totally wrong. He was totally wrong. Have the last word. He said, basically, he's saying, I'm willing to humble myself. I'm willing to humble myself, even when I know I might be in the right. I'm unwilling to humbly admit that I might be wrong. I see here that Jesus, Jesus humbled himself. And if I'm going to humble myself, it's going to be at times willing to say, you know what, I think I'm wrong. Or you know what, you may be entirely right. I might be wrong on that. just to be willing to admit that. So we looked at that last week. We looked, at, we looked at what Jesus did. He humbled himself. We looked, uh, he made himself nothing. Now, this is what I want to look at this week. I want to start off with who Jesus is. And the first point I want you to see in the scripture is he is God. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, there's a key word here. It's, uh, it's the word for nature and who by his very nature. Some uh, translations will say who in form is, in his form is God. They use the word form. And, and uh, I like the word nature better because the word form has changed some in the English language uh, and it has some limitations because form, we tend to think of outward things. Um, um, if, if we, the other day, I, a few months ago, I guess it was, I, I got a, a call uh, from a person who I went to college with, and they just, by chance, in Massachusetts, you know, uh, at, on this day at, a, at, a, at church. And I said, no, I wasn't. And the guy said, well, then I just saw your twin. I saw your twin, someone else who's cursed with looking like you. And, 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 and so that would be, they saw the form of me, right? It looks like me, but it's not me on the inside. It wasn't me. It just looks like me. Well, this here, this, this word is morphe, and it means something that's it's, it's, its very essence. It has the qualities that make it what it is. In this passage, this is setting up what's coming, because it's very key how it plays off of this. And the point that here is saying is... is uh, um, that Jesus is God. Now, some people you'll meet, you may have some Jehovah Witness friends who will say Jesus is not equal with God. He's a lesser God. And, and oftentimes that comes out of um, not understanding the culture that the Bible was written in because sometimes they'll look to a passage that will say, oh, Jesus, it says he's the son of God. Well, the son is less, is less than the father. In Jewish society, when that son turns 13, people, and so this whole idea of Jesus saying, I'm the son of God, was actually a way of claiming I'm equal with God, instead of saying I'm lesser than God, as some people would put it. Matthew 24, 36. 
Jesus said, I don't know the hour of my return. Only the Father knows the hour of my return. And the person said, if Jesus, obviously he should know. Real quick, that's a cultural uh, statement that Jesus is making. When a son comes back for his bride, the father determines when he comes back. So he's making a cultural statement about I'm coming back for my bride. He's not making a statement about his, his, whether he's God or not. And so it's taking it totally out of, out of context. But that's, yeah, anyways. So the second part in this passage, he's saying, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, that word has been used already. He's, it's been used already. Paul has already talked about did not consider equality with God something to be grabbed and held on to, something to hold on to dearly. He's a glory releaser, in a sense. He's giving up glory. Gee, he's the exact opposite. He's not hungry for glory. He's willing to let glory go. In the sense that he is equal with the Father, and he's willing to release. And if you're a Christian... You have God in your life. You have access to this glory that we're talking about here because Jesus is then glorified in the end. And Paul got this. Listen to this. I'm just going to read it. It's not going to be on your screens. He says, he says in Romans 8, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He's saying, look at God. If he gave up his son for us. He gave up his beloved son for us. And so if he's for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. So he's saying, look, you have been justified in Jesus Christ. No one can bring a charge against you because you were justified by God. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died, more than that, not just that he died, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he's saying nothing. He, you know, and it's interesting there. He's not saying we won't go through trouble. He's not saying we won't go through hardship or famine. He's not saying we won't go through those things. He's saying Jesus will walk with us through those very things together. And that, and that, and that means even at the end of a person's life, as they leave this earth, Jesus takes their hand and walks them right into heaven because he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He will never desert us. So what Jesus, what, who Jesus is, he's God. And secondly, and we highlighted this, he's a servant. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant Become a, becoming a servant, he's saying here, he, he became in very nature servant. He, he, and, and I like the word. The word there for taking is not the idea of I exchange one for the other. The word for taking, so, it, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He just said Jesus is God. Now he's saying taking the nature of a servant. And he's not saying he switched them. Taking is the idea of adding something to it, bringing it to it. So he stayed God and in his essence, in his nature, he's a servant. He didn't stop being God. Now, I want to emphasize that for just a second. He did not stop being God. That's what this is clearly teaching us. And I want to say that because there is, there is a, uh, uh, a growing group within Christian circles who think that at some point Jesus stopped being God. And, and, and that's, it's wrong, he never did. He never stopped being God. He added servanthood and manhood, be a person to it. He put his needs above our own. And so what do we do with that?
can happen. He says, through Jesus Christ, this is possible. Jesus is. He's God. He's a servant. And the third thing I want you to see is, is he's a man. All right? He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so here we see this, this incredible point where Jesus became a man. And Scripture tells about it in so many ways. Now, at the end of verse 7, where it says, in human likeness, we talk morphe, which means by its very nature. Now, this isn't morphe. This is the idea that he is uh, he's found in human likeness. He put that on. Right? He put that on because that is not all that he is. It's, it's just a part of he is. So he's like us, but there's more to him than that. And that's reinforced in the next verse. And being found in appearance as a man, found is this idea of how you look at a person and, and you see their outward so you understand who they are. He be, being found in appearance of man, but he's more than a man. Now, I started thinking, The prince and the pauper. The next king of England, and they switch places. And, and it's, a, it's a fun story. It's a very interesting story. Uh, <clears throat> has a lot of, uh, like Mark Twain does, he, he has under, underneath it, he has a lot of statements that he's making about society and status and all those types of things. But, but for me, what I love is an adaptation of it that probably is the best adaptation you will find. And uh, it is the Disney version of it. Look how identical they look, right? That's stupid. Okay, never mind. So what Jesus did, who Jesus is, he's God, he's servant, he's a man. Third, fourth thing is, Jesus is a sacrifice. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This shows how far he humbled himself. This shows to the point of death. This shows part of what happens when we read our Bibles and we read about the night before, uh, the night he millstone. And what they'd do is they'd take those olives and they'd put them in a round trough and the millstone would be rolled over them a few times to crack the olive shells and it gets part of the very first, most, uh, the best, purest oil. Then they would gather up all those cracked olives and, and, and the shells and they'd put them in bags like burlap bags and they would stack them up and then with a cantilever they would lower a stone just like this. This was, is an actual one from the first century that then they would put it on to the, onto those bags of cracked olives and let it sit for a couple days. And it would slowly just push them down and compact them and the oil would drain out and it would be caught in, in pots. Right? The name of that stone is a Gethsemane stone. And so when we read about the Garden of Gethsemane, now, remember that night, Jesus went to pray. It says he was horrified at what he saw coming. And he got and he prayed. And it says that, that beads of sweat. Why? Because he was being crushed. He was being, it's no accident that he went to that garden. That probably was a garden. Most scholars think it was a garden that was full of olive trees. And where Jesus and his disciples probably slept was probably a place where there were these cantilevered stones used to crush olives. And so he was in the garden of the crushing weight, praying to God and bleeding because he was being crushed. And so, so when, we, when we read about him becoming obedient to death, uh, even death on the cross, we, under, we begin to realize this is what's being pictured here. 
This is what's being pictured when we talk about the Garden of Gethsemane. People talk about the Garden of Gethsemane. They think it's this nice little place with stone paths that people can walk through and there's flowers. Oh, you know, these are these and these are these and these. No, no, it's not that at all. It's probably a grove of olive trees with a bunch of these stones and those round uh, millstones. Another thing interesting, those round millstones, you can see in that picture, that one's black. They were made from a, a, a basalt stone, a very black stone. It was the perfect stone for that. What it, how, I don't know why it's the perfect stone, it just was. And they were made almost exclusively in Israel in Capernaum, little town of Capernaum, where they made these millstones. And it's in Capernaum where Jesus said, it would be better for you, you harm one of these, least of these, these little ones of mine. It would be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the Sea sea of Galilee, which was right there. See, he was talking about that black stone that you see, that black millstone, because they were ubiquitous. They were everywhere in Israel, and they were made in Capernaum. So he's in Capernaum, and he used that as an illustration. It would be almost like if Jesus was in Newport News, and he wanted to give an illustration about not harming the least of these. He would say, it would be better for you to be thrown off the deck of an aircraft carrier into the Atlantic Ocean than to harm one of these little ones because he's using something that's very local. Okay, that's totally, yeah. That was free, actually. It's just a side thing. So, so this is it. This is what's going on. He was obedient. Our, this is how our sins were paid for. He lived the perfect, obedient life that we couldn't live. He lived it to us, even to the point of being in that garden saying, Father, is there another way? Can I get out of this? The most humbling, degrading death imaginable to a Jewish person, to be stripped naked, to be abused, to be cursed, and then cursed is the one who hangs on a tree, it says in Deuteronomy. He bore the curse that we deserve, which leads to this incredible triumph in this passage. So now we're going to, we saw what did Jesus do, who Jesus is. Now, what did God do? And he exalted Jesus. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. All right? And the word is very interesting. He doesn't use the word for exalted. He puts a modifier on it. He uses a word for hyper-exalted. The greatest exaltment. So everything is laid aside. And everything is empty that is, is, is now returned. And there's more. And now salvation by faith through grace is possible for us. What else did God do? He gave Jesus a name. Verse 9, therefore the God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every exalted Jesus, gave him a name, and he has been glorified. And this can be a difficult idea. I've talked about this before, but this is one of those things I think we need to talk about every so often because it's, it's a point, and, and part of why I say that is because it came up in a conversation that I had with someone not that long ago talking about God being glorified and feeling like, why does God have to tell us to glorify him? In, in, in the book of Psalms, basically, you see over and over, God saying, sing to me, praise me, clap your hands for me, shout for joy for me, dance for me, play instruments for me. And I love uh, somebody who went at length in this is uh, C.S. Lewis. He wrote about this a number of times because he admitted that before he was a Christian as, a, as an atheist, he thought this was one of the biggest things that he had a problem with it. We had the to be praised, that seems so needy to have God, people um, glorify him, like, like, almost like God's begging for compliments. And then what happened was, as he came to know Christ, he, and he studied it more, he realized, and he writes this, the process of being worshipped, God communicates his presence to men. That's why worshipping in person 
is way more important than worshiping online. Now, we're in the middle of a COVID-19 situation, and so that, that obviously you know, creates a whole problem. But in the long run, God says worship together corporately because he says he communicates in those times. It's not the only way he communicates, but oftentimes you, 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 you realize when you gather with God's people and you worship together corporately, you, there's something special to that. There's something different to that. And so C.S. Lewis said, first thing is, worshiping, God communicates to us. It's not just us doing that. And he reveals himself to us. It's not so much he needs our praise. God's demand, C.S. Lewis writes, God's demand that we praise him, to make much of him, to sing to him, to rejoice in him, has nothing to do with him. and has everything to do with us because he's not lacking. God doesn't have tough weeks where he needs his, his strokes or anything like that. But the second thing C.S. Lewis said excuse me, even much more than that. He says the, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or of anything, <clears throat> is something that is natural for human beings. Like the idea of a compliment or approval or giving of honor. I had never noticed, he wrote, that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows with praise. The world rings with praise. He said lovers praise each other Readers praise their favorite poet. Walkers praise the countryside as they go through it. Players. People say, isn't she lovely? Wasn't that glorious? Isn't this fun? Wasn't that awesome? And they love to do that. And he's saying, this is what the Psalms are about. We are by design worshipers. We want to draw people into what we value and what we worship and what we love. And this has never been more obvious than in the creation of social media, Right? Because, let's face it, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many people here have ever taken a picture of and sent it to someone and said, this is amazing. What are you doing when you do that? You're praising something. You're saying, this is so good. I want you to be a part. I want you to see what I'm eating. If you're, if you're having a delicious meal with other people and you have something, you say, this is incredible. Taste it. Taste it. You want them to enjoy what you find great pleasure in. Because let's face it, I mean, when you kind of think about it, you're at Panera and you take a picture of a bagel and bam, you send it out to people. Look at this. That's, you know, it's kind of, if you think about it, it's kind of weird. But it's, this, it's who we are. This is, we take a bite of food, we want someone else to see it. You have to taste this. You tell people, I wish you could have seen it. Right? It's interesting to me when I talk to people about things like this. And uh, um, I think about probably the, the, the biggest religion in our country is football. And uh, it, it, especially it's by far, I think. And oftentimes I will meet people, uh, people who will tell me, you know, I'm For the Washington Redskins. And then I got to light up. Oh, ho, ho, Bob, that's a trick question. That's a trick question. Here's why. They just traded their second string center. So the third string center has now become the second string center. You're trying to trick me. But that's Ross Pierschbacker. He's from Alabama. He played four years for Alabama, starting at guard and then starting at center. He's only 25. It's only his second season. They have high hopes for him. He scored really high on the Wonderlick. He's a sharp dude. That from a person who says, I struggle reading the Bible, right? And suddenly they're Rain Man all of a sudden, right? 
Suddenly you're a genius. You haven't read your Bible all week, but somehow you know the third string center of the Washington Redskins. Now, what that tells us is it's an issue of affections. That's what's going on. It's an issue of the brain. What do we love? It shows us what do we love. Now, I'm not against football. I'm not anti-football. Don't sit there. I know there's people at home. Okay, Bob, then go write poetry, you nerd. Okay, don't. I, I, I'm not against football. I'm just saying where your affections are, you find it easy to be a studier. You find it easy to be a thinker. You find it easy to be a rejoicer. One of my greatest affections is motorcycles. I have one. I love motorcycles. I can go online and just look at motorcycles. And I love it. I love it. I love looking at motorcycles that when I was a kid, oh, that's a Royal Enfield. Oh, that's an old Indian. Oh, that's this, 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 all that kind of stuff. I love that stuff. And I can look at them. Why? Because that's where my affections are. And I'm very stu- I'm, I, I can be very studious when it comes to motorcycles. And so what we have to do is we have to stop and think. We have to to have to kind of think of ourselves diagnostically. What do I truly value? Because what you value, you'll share. And when we talk about praising God and glorifying God, it's not because God needs to be glorified. It's because we get great joy and meaning out of glorifying him. He knows what's best for us, and so he says, glorify me. You will find great joy there. Glorify me. Honor me with your life. You will experience great joy there. It's like God is begging us. He's saying, for your sake. Sometimes, if it, you really... the joy. And that's what that's all about. When we talk about praising God, when God being glorified, it's because it brings joy in our lives. And so in the end, you know, I think about this, how do we facilitate, how do we, how do, how do, we do gospel-centered worship so that God is glorified? And, and like on a morning like this, when we gather, we're, we're, really, a, we're really a very simple church. Um, I speak far longer than most social scientists say people have attention spans. And, and, uh, and then we sing. We sing and I speak. And that's basically our service. It's not complex. It's not super creative. And when we preach the books of the Bible, when we do a series on Philippians, we call it the series on Philippians. It's not that catchy. It's, it's just us. This is who we are. It's the Bible and then we sing. And together we're worshiping together. That's, that's mainly what it is. Because we want to glorify God in that. And God says he's glorified in that. And so, what Jesus did, who Jesus is, and what God did. That's what we learn in this passage. Now, we have to then think it. We have to take it to the next step. How do I apply that? Even as I talked about at the beginning, I want to be a person that follows Jesus Christ. I want to be a person that is willing to serve. This willing uh, to humble myself. For the sake of others. And this passage is very important to us in learning that. Partly because it shapes who we are. It tells us this is who our Savior is. And by extension, this is who you are. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have Jesus Christ in you. This is who you are. I'm, I'm a server, just like Jesus. That's who I am. And then the question is, am I living it out? 
And what does that mean to, for me? In today's world, as a follower of Jesus Christ, what does it mean? And, it, and here's the thing. It's different for every one of us in what it means and how you apply this. But I think the first step in figuring that out, because oftentimes we're like, ah, I don't know, I don't know. The first step in figuring that out is asking God, God, give me wisdom on this. And that, I didn't mean for that, but it just, to me, it, it logically moves into tonight from 6 to 7 o'clock. We're going to have a prayer time, and there's going to be things like this. Who can we pray for? Who can we serve? What does Scripture say? And so I, I will say it again. 6 to 7, there'll be slides. Each slide, 12 slides. Each slide is up for two minutes. In 24 minutes, you've prayed through the whole rotation. You can come in. You can pray for five minutes. You can pray for the whole hour. It doesn't matter. This would just be set up. The room would be fairly dark. Slide up on the screen, and you just pray. You just pray. And that is, in a sense, probably the most important thing that our church could do right now in the midst of all the situations that are going on in our world, in our country, in, on the peninsula. If you said, what's the most important thing I could do, Bob? I would tell you, it's pray. It's pray. And, and, and it's the easiest thing. But it's where the power is. When we, when we become invested in something and we become asking God to help us see how to minister and how to be a part of that. So I would encourage you, you just drop by. Nobody's going to, you know, just come in, you sit down, you pray for a while as long as you can, you leave. It's uh, an incredibly easy way to be a part of solving and working on the problems in our church, in our community, and in our nation. And also, it's what God wants us to do. He wants us to do this. So let's pray right now. Father, we thank you for your word. As followers of Jesus Christ, I pray that you would illuminate us. Give us the eyes to see how you want us to live. We think of Paul in Romans 8 saying, there, there is no other way. There is, there's no halfway being a, a, a Christian. You're looking for people who are all in. Help us to be people who will answer that call. Help us to be people who will be willing to humble ourselves for the sake of others and to be servants. And Lord, you know for us that is hard at times. You sent your son. He becomes the perfect example of that. Help us to follow in his footsteps. And through your Holy Spirit, give us the, give us the power, give us the strength to do the things that are hard to do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning. God bless you, and you are dismissed.